Well, howdy. Good to see all of you this morning. Really, really grateful that you're here. We have lots of people who continue to be on the road. And so for those of you who have carved out time to be here, to encourage one another, to join in worship this morning, really, really glad you're here. I want to let you know, I shared this in the first assembly, I'm just so uh, truly humbled to be part of a church that is filled with so many incredible people. And um, I'm so looking forward to the future, to other folks that will come our way because of the commitment that this church is making, a renewed commitment, I believe, to be the hands and feet of Jesus. And we're just so blessed. If you think about the individual jobs that you all are in and the, the circles of influence that you run in, the ripple effect of your lives, and then you multiply that across the spectrum that is this church, it's just it's truly amazing. You know, I appreciate James so much leading this morning, and you know, he's in a, a context where literally decisions that he makes impacts hundreds of people, ultimately possibly thousands of people. We've got individuals, um, you know, I don't want to embarrass anybody, but you know, Brian, your job, you impact a lot of people. Um, you know, Jerry, in your job, you, you a lot of folks that lives are going to be impacted in profound ways, teachers, others. In the first assembly, we had Jimmy Lawhorn here who works for Bluebell, and he's really making a difference, you know, in the lives of <laughs> lots of people. But it's just incredible to think about our family. And I don't want to keep this family just our family, right? We want to open up our arms and our hearts and our eyes and our ears to people to come be part of what God's doing here. It's a great day for celebration today. A lot of you may have already heard this, but our sister Mary Frances is 104 years young today. 104. That is amazing. 104. Mace, would you lead us in happy birthday to Miss Mary Frances? Day to you. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday, Mary Frances. Happy birthday to you. Oh, that was awesome. That was awesome. There's some cards out there in the foyer the family's put out to just wish her a happy birthday. I was visiting with Meredith on Friday, and she said that Miss Mary Frances would love reading those over the next several weeks, and I think there might even be a little gathering out here in just a bit when we're wrapped up. So thank you, thank you. We love you, and we're glad you're here. We're glad you're here. So this morning, we're going to be in the book of Nehemiah, chapter 2. If you have your Bibles, please turn there, and I want you to keep that Bible out. We are going to be reading lots of verses of Scripture this morning. There are all types of different sermons. Sometimes I preach sermons that are more visual. Sometimes I preach sermons that really help engage us in more of a feely-touchy kind of dynamic. This morning, we're going to be listening mostly to the Word of God. And so there's going to be a lot of work I'm going to ask you to do this morning. As we are turning in various places in our Bibles. If you don't have a Bible with you, please don't be embarrassed. We want to give you a Bible. We love to give Bibles away. You'll see a Bible in the pew in front of you. Please feel free to take that. Or if you like the electronic version, I highly recommend BibleGateway.com. Just pull that up on your phone. You can access the internet through our guest access uh, portal here. 
And we'd be happy for you to uh, follow along electronically this morning as well. But Nehemiah chapter 2, we're in the middle of an eight-week series on Nehemiah. This is week three. If you missed lessons one and two, I would encourage you to go to our website, www.am.church, and you can access those lessons. Um, Over the past two weeks, when we started this series on Nehemiah, we learned a couple of things about Nehemiah. We learned that he is captive, uh, the Babylonians. He hears the news that the walls of Jerusalem lie in ruins, and it just upsets him deeply. He, he cries, he, he prays, he goes into a season of fasting uh, for about four months. And ultimately, when that four months is up, he goes before the Persian king Artaxerxes and he prays that God will give him favor before this man. And God indeed gives him favor. And Artaxerxes commissions Nehemiah to return to Judea to restore the walls of Jerusalem. The trip that he took from the city of Susa, which was a, a, a kind of a co-capital in the Babylonian Empire, um, from, from Susa to Jerusalem would have been well over a thousand miles. And so when we read the text this morning, one of the first things that we're going to notice is that Nehemiah waited three days. I'm telling you, if I had been on a camel or a mule uh, for a thousand miles, I would need three days too, right? Before I start doing anything else. And so this is what we see in Nehemiah chapter 2, beginning at verse 11. I went to Jerusalem And after I stayed there three days, I set out during the night with a few others. I hadn't told anyone what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. There were no mounts with me except the one I was riding on. By night I went out through the valley gate toward the jackal well and the dung gate, examining the walls of Jerusalem which had been broken down and its gates, which had been destroyed by fire. And then I moved on toward the fountain gate and the king's pool, but there was not enough room for my mount to go through, and so I went up the valley by night, examining the walls. Finally, I turned back, and I re-entered through the valley gate. The officials didn't know where I had gone, or what I was doing, because as yet I had said nothing to the Jews or the priests or the nobles or the officials or any others who would be doing the work. But then I said to them, you see the trouble we're in. Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem. And we will no longer be in disgrace. I also told them about the gracious hand of my God on me, what the king had said to me, and they replied, let's start rebuilding. And so they began this good work. But, when Sanballat, the Horonite, Tobiah, the Ammonite official, and Geshem, the Arab, heard about it, they mocked and ridiculed us. What's this you're doing, they asked. Are you rebelling against the king? And I answered them by saying, The God of heaven will give us success. We, his servants, will start rebuilding. But as for you, you have no share 
in Jerusalem or any claim or historic right to it. Now I want to revisit these verses this morning. And remember earlier I asked you to do some work with me during this lesson. So again, if you have your Bible, keep it out. We're going to be reading quite a few scriptures that really help us understand the heart of what's happening here. I want to revisit these verses, though, that we just read, and a little bit at a time, break them down, and I want to see what lessons we can learn and what lessons we can apply. So let's start back at the beginning, Nehemiah 2, verse 11. I went out to Jerusalem, and after staying there three days, I set out during the night with a few others. And I hadn't told anyone what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. There were no mounts with me except the one I was riding on. So there are four things here that get my attention. First, Nehemiah sets out in the night. He's got a few other people with him. He told God's plans to no one, and he was the only one on a horse. Now, I look at this, and there's something that I see happening here. We have to remember that Nehemiah has proven he is a man who absolutely, positively believes in prayer. He is sold out to prayer. And I believe as we read what we see here on screen, these events that are beginning to take place, I don't think this was just based on his smarts, even though that plays a part. I believe this surfaces, this awareness, these actions surface out of his prayer. And I see a complementary dynamic that is beginning to form here. And it is this, praying to plan goes hand in hand with planning to pray. I want you just to hang on to that for a moment. It doesn't mean that we must plan every time we pray. We saw earlier that when Nehemiah is in the courtroom of Artaxerxes, he just pauses and prays. I don't really see a plan there. It's just spontaneous prayer. God grant me favor. Richard Foster refers to these types of prayers as flash prayers. These are the kinds of prayers that we can pray while we're walking through the grocery store and we just pray a prayer over someone who goes beside us. Or as we're checking out, we pray a prayer over the cashier. Or as we're interacting with someone or passing somebody here in the great hall, we just throw a flash prayer up to God. But, but I want us to remember the specific context here in which Nehemiah is set the walls of Jerusalem are in ruins the people are surrounded by others who with little provocation could come in and do horrible things they could for example destroy the temple again or worse destroy a nation so Nehemiah prays And out of his prayers, a plan begins to form. I think in part because he plans to pray. And I'm going to make a statement. And I'm not sure how you're going to take it. But sometimes I think we just have to speak bold truth. 
So here it is. If we as a church are not committed to prayer, then we need to put a for sale sign in our front yard. When we don't pray, we clearly communicate to God, thanks but no thanks. We don't need you. We can figure this out on our own. Isn't it telling that in churches all over America that hundreds or maybe even thousands of people will gather if there's a really popular preacher or possibly a popular author who is coming to speak, but when we have a call to prayer, nobody has to fight for a seat. Francis Chan says the following as he writes on prayer in letters to the church. Would you say that prayer plays any meaningful role in the life of your church? If prayer isn't vital for your church, then your church isn't vital. That statement may be bold, but I believe it's true. If you can accomplish your church's mission without daily passionate prayer, then your mission is insufficient and your church is irrelevant. The early church devoted themselves to prayer. They knew they couldn't exist without it. If God didn't come through, they could never fulfill the mission He had given them. And so they were constantly on their knees together. Church, if we are going to help restore that which lies in ruins, we're going to have to be people who are committed, sold out, all in when it comes to prayer. It starts with you as individuals. It manifests itself in our families. It connects us then as a body of believers as we cry out to the Lord. And I can't emphasize enough how important this is. Richard Foster gives us a little bit more insight on what it means when we pray, what happens when we pray. To pray is to change. Prayer is the central avenue God uses to transform us. You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. James chapter 4, verse 3. To ask rightly involves transformed passions. In prayer, real prayer, we begin to think God's thoughts after Him, to the de desire the things He desires, to love the things He loves, to will the things He wills. Progressively, we are taught to see things from His point of view. Now this is a tall order. This is a major ask. Because me-ism, individualism, in an age of relativism where truth is what you make it, it is very, very difficult for the people of God to long to be in the image of God because there are so many pressures that are pushing on us that encourage us to be otherwise. I think it speaks even more profoundly to the deep need of prayer. And I ask you as a church to commit to it. Otherwise, why are we here? 
Even though a plan is forming as a result of prayer, Nehemiah is not being open with his plans at this point. He is being methodical. He is being strategic. He is being purposeful as he surveys the landscape. Nothing indicates, however, that even though he's doing these things, that he stopped being prayerful. Nothing indicates he stopped trusting the Lord. Quite the contrary, he continues to honor God as the source of every decision that he makes. We see that in verse 12 here in chapter 2. So there's this phenomenon that's going on that provides this incredible lesson for people of faith. There's great spiritual wisdom in making a plan and working the plan. Put another way, Nehemiah models beautifully what it means for believers to partner with God to make a plan, work the plan. Let's break it down a little bit. Making a plan takes time and it takes energy. And most importantly, it takes commitment. Making a plan is contextual, right? You've got to have the right plan for the right reasons at the right time. So in Nehemiah's case, he had to formulate his initial plans at night. Enemies were about, those eager to sell his intentions to others who could do him or others harm. So nighttime provides cover. Only a handful of people go with him, meaning he's very purposeful about who is part of this early conversation mix. Those who were with him probably didn't even know what was going on. However, they do contribute to his success. And as a result, there's this foundation that is laid of co-ownership of the plan. I will say this, from my own experience, working a plan is much harder than making a plan. Can I get an oh yeah? Working a plan is usually harder than making a plan. Our, we had a bathroom toilet that went out a couple of weeks ago. There was a crack in it. We walked in. There's water in the floor. We decide to replace it, so I make a plan. Guess what? Working the plan's a whole lot harder. It's in there. I hope it's going to work. So making a plan is, is it's difficult, but man, working that plan is so much harder. The gravitational pull of a system is so strong. The opinions of the masses are so varied. The critical spirit of those who prefer to throw rocks at versus lifting prayers up, our own personal brokenness, all of this and more, makes it extremely difficult to work the plan. Now we're going to talk more about this next week. But today I want to focus on making the plan. So let's re-engage the text and see what we discover. Nehemiah says, By night I went out through the valley gate toward the jackal well and the dung gate, or that could also be called the refuse gate, examining the walls of Jerusalem, which had been broken down, and its gates which had been destroyed by fire. And then I moved on toward the fountain gate and the king's pool, but there was not enough room for my mount to get through. So I went up the valley by night, examining the wall. Finally, I turned back and I re-entered through the valley gate. So in Nehemiah's case, working the plan just immediately reveals some wonderful leadership principles. I see our shepherds imitating many of these principles. I encourage you as you think about the different contexts that you're in to think about what can I draw from this? What do I see in Nehemiah that can help me in my context when I'm trying to lead people to Jesus? 
First of all, Nehemiah is prayed up. We saw this a couple of weeks ago. He is prayerful. He also has a purpose. He is purposeful as he lays out his plans. Third, he gets into the trenches. He doesn't send other people out to find out what's going on and bring a report back to him. He goes out and sees for himself the scope of the damage. And fourth, he knows where his people have been. And that helps inform where he's going. So I want to show you a map on screen. You're going to notice three circles that showcase the gates that are mentioned as he takes this journey on this particular night. Now this is a little bit difficult because north is actually pointing left to right. So if you're a little bit like me, you may have to turn your head this way, okay, to kind of get this spatially in your mind. But we see that he exits on the west side and he begins to make his way around the southern part of the city to inspect the damage. And so here's this fourth great leadership characteristic. He knows where his people have been, but here's the deal. He's not paralyzed by it. He doesn't get stuck in the past. He doesn't remain captive of the past. So a little history lesson this morning. Knowing where we've been, that keeps us from repeating the mistakes of the past as we live into a life-giving future. When the Assyrians threatened to attack Jerusalem in 701 B.C., King Hezekiah builds a wall. And he is repairing sections of an original wall that was constructed by a nomadic group called the Jebusites. The Jebusites lived in Jerusalem prior to Jerusalem being conquered by King David. Now the Jebusites thought, we got an awesome wall. Hey, nobody going to be able to come in here and, and take us because our wall is awesome. We are fortified. We actually read their version of not even God can sink the Titanic in 2 Samuel chapter 5. So the king, and that's David, and his men marched to Jerusalem to attack the Jebusites who lived there. And the Jebusites said to David, you will not get in here. Even the blind and the lame can ward you off. And they thought, David can't get in here. Nevertheless, David captured the fortress of Zion, which is the city of David. David then took up residence in the fortress, and he called it the city of David. He built up the area around it from the terraces inward. And he became more and more powerful because, and I want you to pay very close attention to this phrase, because, say it with me, the Lord God Almighty was with him. That's going to be important as we look a little deeper in the text. When David captures Jerusalem, we're probably talking a, a city area that is smaller than our church campus. Probably only about 12 acres or so is what David overcomes. But as time passes, the scope of the city, the footprint of the city, the fortification grows dramatically. 
Ultimately, in ancient times, it becomes about ten times the size of that which David originally conquered. We read more about this in 2 Chronicles chapter 32 and verse 5. Then he, that's King Hezekiah, who was the 13th king of Judah, he worked hard repairing all the broken sections of the wall and building towers on it. He built another wall outside that one and reinforced the terraces of the city of David. Hezekiah's wall was a strong wall. It was about 16 and a half feet wide. In some sections, it was as much as 20 feet wide, and it went entirely around the city. Archaeologists have uncovered huge portions of this wall. Most likely, the the wall with its gates, this is the wall uh, that Nehemiah is repairing, at least this particular section where it's particularly wide. So let's review the leadership traits and let's add a fifth. He's prayed up. He's prayerful. He is a man of purpose. He's in the trenches. He's seeing for himself. He knows where they've been so that that can inform where they're going. And then the fifth thing is he identifies where the work is most needed. And that's where he begins. And remember, all of this happens because he is prayed up. This plan surfaces because he is prayer full. The text continues, the officials didn't know what I had gone or what I was doing because as yet I had said nothing to the Jews or the priests or the nobles or officials or any others who would be doing the work. And here's this thing that happens. We don't know how much time passes. There's this dramatic pause and we're not sure how long it lingers. But he says, then, then I said to them, you see the trouble we're in. Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and we will no longer be in disgrace. Do you see the progression here? And this, this works if you're a junior higher or it works if you're 104, okay? There's this progression. He lays out the problem. He identifies the cause He identifies the fix and he showcases what's going to be the outcome. That's making a plan. They are in disgrace, but it's not where they want to be. They want a different outcome than their current outcome. They want to be in grace, not in disgrace grace we don't have time this morning to process every aspect of this plan but there is one portion that i want to key in on the history of what got them to this point second kings chapter 25 beginning at verse 1 so in the ninth year of zedekiah's reign on the 10th day of the 10th month nebuchadnezzar king of Babylon, marched against Jerusalem with his whole army. He encamped outside the city and he built siege works all around it. The city was kept under siege until the 11th year of King Zedekiah. And by the ninth day of the fourth month, the famine in the city had become so severe, there was no food for the people to eat. Are you with me here? Do you see the picture? Babylon has surrounded Jerusalem. 
and they've cut off all supply chains. The people are literally starving to death. Then the city wall was broken through, and the whole army fled at night through the gate between the two walls near the king's garden, though the Babylonians were surrounding the city. Now, I want you to notice this key phrase here in verse 4. Then the city wall was broken through. I, I might be missing something here, but if I'm reading this correctly, it wasn't the king of Babylon who broke in. It was the king of Judah breaking out. Do you see what I'm seeing in the text? This is not the king of Babylon breaking into the city. This is the king of Judah breaking out of the city. So if I'm reading this correctly, the destruction of the walls of Jerusalem began as an inside job. The destruction of the walls of Jerusalem began from the inside out. Now there's more to the story, so hang in there with me just a little bit longer. 2 Kings 25, verse 8, On the seventh day of the fifth month, in the nineteenth year of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, Nebuzaradan, commander of the imperial guard and official of the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem. He set fire to the temple of the Lord, the royal palace, and all the houses of Jerusalem. Every important thing he burned down. The whole Babylonian army under the commander of the imperial guard broke down the walls around Jerusalem. The city lies in disgrace. Nehemiah says. It's an interesting question, though. Why did Babylon destroy the walls? If the king is taking the city, doesn't it make more sense to keep it fortified? So I think this is what's going on. I think Nebuchadnezzar is fulfilling what God begins. And I think that's why the walls are, are brought Low. If we can back up one more chapter, we read in 2 Kings 24, beginning at verse 13, as the Lord had declared, say that first part with me, as the Lord had declared, Nebuchadnezzar removed the treasures from the temple of the Lord and from the royal palace and cut up the gold articles that Solomon, king of Israel, had made for the temple of the Lord. He carried all Jerusalem into exile all the officers and fighting men, and all the skilled workers and artisans, a total of 10,000, only the poorest people in the land were left. I, I cannot stress this enough this morning. As we reflect on this text, God is serious about righteousness. God is serious about righteousness. To treat the Word of God flippantly. To treat our relationship with God as casual. Only leads to catastrophic results. Let's back up a little bit more as we turn to 2 Kings 21. The Lord said through His servants, the prophets, Manasseh, king of Judah, has committed these detestable sins. And if you want to read about Manasseh, back up a few more chapters and you can see specifically what he did. He, that's Manasseh, has done more evil than the Amorites who preceded him 
and has led Judah into sin with his idols. And therefore, this is what the Lord God of Israel says. I am going to bring such disaster on Jerusalem and Judah that the ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. I will stretch out over Jerusalem the measuring line used against Samaria and the plumb line used against the house of Ahab. I will wipe out Jerusalem as one wipes out a dish, wiping it and turning it upside down. I will forsake the remnant of my inheritance and give them into the hands of enemies. They will be looted and plundered by all their enemies. They have done evil in my eyes and have aroused my anger from the day their ancestors came out of Egypt until this day. When Nehemiah says, come, let us rebuild and we will no longer be in disgrace, it is like the opening of the eyes of the prodigal son in Luke 15. It is a come to our senses moment, not just for a man, but for an entire nation. Jerusalem isn't just brick and mortar to the Israelites. It is the heart of their covenant with God. A covenant that when they find themselves in distant country, just like the prodigal son, made them long for home. We hear it in, in the lament of the psalmist in Psalm 137 when he writes, By the rivers of Babylon we sat and we wept when we remembered Zion, there on the poplars, we hung our harps. For there our captors asked us for songs. Our tormentors demanded songs of joy. They said, sing us one of the songs of Zion. How can we sing the songs of the Lord in a foreign land? If I forget you, Jerusalem, may my right hand forget its skill. May my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you, if I do not consider Jerusalem my highest joy. Does this not give us insight into the depth of Nehemiah's despair? Does it help us better understand the devastating consequences of sin? Does it not remind us that, that God and darkness cannot coexist and that paying attention to the word of God and doing everything we can to bring people into the kingdom of God is worth the time and the money and the energies that we expend you may be thinking well I'm really glad Greg that all of this is in the Old Testament and that and that Jesus came and and took his sin upon us and I would say to that amen and amen but church Jesus himself did not say, seek first to keep one foot in the kingdom and another foot in the world, and everything's going to be hunky-dory. And I don't even know what hunky-dory means, but I think it's something good. But in the case of rebellion against God, it is not good. Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God and his what? His righteousness. And then everything else in your life will orient around that pursuit. The people of Judah just forgot God. The years passed, time passed. 
They became comfortable trying to keep one foot in the, in the, in the law and, and, and one foot in the world. And as time progressed, they just forgot Him. But here's something that's amazing about God. He never forgot them. Did He discipline them? Yes. Profoundly. But He never forgot them. Nehemiah reflects this when he says, I also told them about the gracious hand of my God on me. And what the king had said to me, and they replied, let's start rebuilding. And so they began this good work. The the wall that was broken can finally be rebuilt because hearts that are broken are ready to rebuild. One by one, they begin to understand that they had been part of the problem and now they wanted to be part of the solution. And the people whose ancestors had been driven out said, we're all in. And then it happens. Somebody picks up the first brick. And the energy and the focus and the resolve begins to stir in the hearts of people. And they begin this good work. One of my favorite lines in all of Scripture. However, when the people of God begin to move, those who prefer darkness over light will not sit still long. When Sanballat the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite official, and Geshem the Arab heard about it, they mocked and ridiculed us. What is this you're doing, they asked. Are you rebelling against the king? Now it's significant that these three bond together in opposition to Nehemiah. In some ways, they attempt to press in on all sides to derail Nehemiah from his plans. And can't we all relate to this on some level? I know that as a minister, I I often feel this kind of pressure knowing that every time I step into the pulpit, There's always going to be somebody who's looking for an opportunity to pounce. Every time I preach, I know there's going to be some who want to invite the preacher to lunch and others who want to eat the preacher's lunch. I'm not exactly sure what that means either, but I don't think it's good. I have a hunch that all of you can relate. As you work in your job or just did you just live your life? There's always plenty of naysayers. Not a single one of us are immune. Even the great Apostle Paul felt these same pressures when he was dealing with those who prefer the way of darkness over the way of light. In 2 Corinthians 4, he writes, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. Church, I want you to hear me. No matter what we do, and no matter how well we do it, there will always be those who will disagree and want to cause a fuss. And that is why we absolutely must, like Nehemiah, plan to be informed by who and what is around us, but listen first and foremost to the voice of God and everything that we do.
Nehemiah continues, I answered them, these naysayers, I answered them by saying the God of heaven will give us success. We, his servants, will start rebuilding, but as for you, you have no share in Jerusalem or any claim or historic right to it. The most important part of that verse is the phrase, the God of heaven will give us success. And may we own that in our hearts, even as Nehemiah owned it in his. And so, why does any of this matter? How does all of this relate to being the hands and feet of Jesus in this season of incarnation? What about these verses prepares us to be a church that helps others find hope and live with purpose? Just a couple of takeaways that I want you to consider this morning. I think God may be disciplining those that He loves. And I think one of the reasons that we may be in the shape that we're in as a nation is because God is letting us live into the consequences of our choices. But I also believe that we as followers of Jesus have the answer. Not an answer. I believe we have the answer. Because we follow Jesus who is the Christ. The way, the truth, the light. So I believe, church, that God will honor us by allowing His plans to surface if we commit to prayer. I believe with all of my heart that if we as a church will be on our knees in prayer, if we will come together for prayer, that God will reveal a plan to us. I think He's already doing it. I think once God does reveal that plan, we've got to be a church that's willing to work that plan. And I'm going to have a lot more to say about that over the, the next few weeks, so please stay tuned. Another takeaway for me as I think about this text is that a, a plan without motivation is like a car with no gas. I can't make you be motivated. But I believe the Holy Spirit can convict you can convict us of what's at stake. What's our motivation? I hope and I pray that the love of God compels us to love others. If that's not a good enough cause to lead us to care, I don't have any idea what will. I got nothing. God never forgets us. May we always remember Him in everything we do, and everything we say. And then finally, when the people of God are all in, good work begins. So I'm inviting you today to say, I'm all in. And as we make this plan, and as we work this plan, you'll continue to say, I'm all in. And the good work that's already been going on here, those who've gone on before us and built their walls, we're going to continue to build on that to God's glory and to His honor. It's possible today that in your own life, you're kind of in a messy place right now. Maybe those fortifications that you built up that you thought, yeah, this will sustain me. You now realize that 
those were expectations and fortifications that you borrowed from the world and you realize, you know what? There's no longevity there. Only the will and the way and the Word of God, only that will sustain me. So if you need to pray this morning, a prayer of repentance, do that as we sing a song here in just a few moments. If you want to be baptized today, give your life to the Lord. What an incredible blessing that would be. You can make your way down to the front if you would like. You can turn to the person next to you if you would like. There's going to also be a couple of our elders at the back of the room. You can go and visit with them if you like. most important thing, whether you visibly respond or not, is to respond in your heart, I'm all in. Let's own it while we stand together and while we sing.